Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. The Economist. In London, this is The Economist, and you're listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation on science and technology. I'm Tim Cross, the science correspondent, and I'm talking today with Natasha Loder, our healthcare correspondent, and Miranda Johnson, who covers the environment. In this episode, we'll talk about children, both the hypothetical genetically engineered sort and the metaphorical climate-related kind. In other words, designer babies and El Nino. Natasha, let's uh, start with you. You've written a piece this week. In fact, uh, it's our cover piece on something called CRISPR-Cas9, which is a new technology that lets us uh, edit genomes. We've heard a lot about genetic engineering down the years. So what makes this uh, so different and so newsworthy? It's a bit like a pair of molecular scissors uh, with a GPS attached. And um, you tell the scissors where you want them to cut DNA. And it's an incredible precision tool. It's very simple to use. And um, what has scientists really excited is the ease of use. It's something that can be used by someone who is a high school student. And it's not something we've invented, is it? It's something we've appropriated from somewhere else. That's right. It was actually discovered as a bacterial set of proteins. And, you know, essentially what the bacteria does is it has a sort of memory of viruses that have invaded it in the past. And the this sort of CRISPR setup allows uh, the bacteria to sort of remember these viruses and then when they reinvade to go and sort of chop them up. So yes, it's been appropriated. So it's a sort of bacterial immune system. That's right. It is a bacterial immune system. And for a long time, nobody really knew what it was. And then in 2012, a couple of scientists, uh, Jennifer Doudner, one of them, uh, discovered what it was for. Very quickly, they kind of realised how useful it could be in gene editing. Now, we can gene edit already, but the technologies that we use are kind of really, really difficult to use, very expensive, very time consuming. Mm. And what CRISPR makes possible is not only to make these easy edits on, say, one gene or deletions of one gene, is to maybe, well, they call it multiplexing. So you could make, you know, three or four or more changes to a genome you know, very trivially. And that will allow us to do all sorts of exciting things. So what kind of things then could we do with this? I mean, we can tell it what we want it to target. We Mm -hmm. can pick the DNA at targets. We can tell it where we want to replace things. What does that actually get us in in practical terms? If you're doing research, I mean, the world is your oyster, really. I mean, say, for example, you're trying to model Alzheimer's, you're trying to understand Alzheimer's. You know, at the moment, what people would do is they would tinker with one or two genes at a time. because In mice, we should say. In mice, yes, of course. That didn't really kind of get them. It was very difficult. It took years to get a couple of genes changed. Whereas now, you know, they'll be able to modify half a dozen genes at a time in a mouse and then kind of see what's happening and really kind of understand the progression of things like Alzheimer's and and many, many other diseases that have, you know, multiple genetic components. Can I jump in here? Yeah, Miranda, sure. Yeah. So we can fix things seemingly that are 
broken, but if uh, my sci-fi reading serves me well, might this technology be used to fix things that aren't broken? You know, are we going to have uh, everyone's children being six foot five and incredibly athletic? And could this technology be misused? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people are quite exercised about CRISPR and how it might be misused and whether you could use to sort of enhance genes. What has people most worried is when you would apply this technology, say, to an embryo or to sperm cells and egg cells, because if you think about any changes that you make to the sort of genomes in the cells in our bodies those kind of vanish when we die. Um, but if you make genetic changes to the genome in sort of inside, the DNA rather, inside a sperm or an egg or an embryo, that's going to be passed on from generation to generation. And lots of people say, oh, that's something we shouldn't do. And they feel that this is going to be the sort of slippery slope that from medical changes to enhancement. Um, I must admit, I'm kind of sceptical in some ways about some of those arguments. But, you know, it is something that worries people. You raised some interesting examples in the piece, you talk about one of the pioneers of this thing, and he goes around with a presentation of things that seemingly you could change with sort of small modifications. So you can give people stronger bones as one of them. I think um, less offensive body odour, rather, <laughs> is on the list. Um, there are more serious things as well. So there's a gene variant that's somewhat common in Europeans. It seems to protect quite strongly against HIV infection. I mean, could we just give that to everyone? That would be quite a good thing to do. Yes, I mean, these things are all possible in theory. I mean, the honest answer, we don't know. And I think the basic point is that we should do the basic research, including that on embryos, because if we don't do it, you know, we're sort of closing off doorways to potential therapies and cures that we just might never know about. That said, it may be possible to get at all of these or many of these genetic diseases through somatic editing, that is to do gene editing on body cells. But I think we need to keep an open mind on the idea that some really useful therapies might come out of germline editing. You've got to think, well... People are finding out more and more about their own genomes. And as they do, there are lots of things that they would rather not pass on to their children, whether it's breast cancer gene, BRCA2, or whether it's something for early onset Alzheimer's, which may have plagued your grandfather. And, you know, you, you may want to make these choices. I, I wonder what, what one of the things that was interesting when, when I was looking and, and reading was about the idea that parents might possibly make choices for their children that might not be in their best interest. For example, deaf parents might choose to um, alter a child so that their child was also deaf. That would perhaps make sense to them in, in their family unit. Is that a problem sort of alongside these things? It could almost go the other way. I think we need to remember a few things is that one, any kind of therapy to the sort of body cells is going to have to be approved by a medical body of some sort yeah. in, in pretty much any reasonable country you would go to. Um, so there's that. And then with regards to sort of changes that you might make to embryos, I think the point to make is that it's actually banned in about 40 countries and highly restricted in a lot of others. And so this isn't a technology that you could just sort of pick up and decide to use. What you'd need to do is kind of make the case for it, and presumably that would happen on a case-by-case -case basis. You would say, well... I would like to make this germline modification because it will help this small group of people who want to, I don't know, people with cystic fibrosis want to get married and have normal children. There'll be kind of a small number of cases. And so, you know, at some level, it's kind of difficult to see 
that we would necessarily have to kind of get down this this kind of you know road to just changing everything at yeah. will. Um, you know that said, the values that we have are not necessarily here in this room and in this country and in other countries that we know of may not be the same values that other countries have. And it may be that in some parts of the world, they're kind of like, well, actually, we don't have a problem with this. And so that's also something that we need to recognise is that not everyone will feel the same about this. Okay, well, I guess if this technology even delivers on half of its promises, I'm sure we'll be back here uh, rehearsing this stuff again in the future. Thanks, Natasha. Miranda, turning to you, you've been writing about a different kind of child, a metaphorical one. Um, This is El Nino, which is Spanish for the Christ child, for baby Jesus. But it also refers to a a climate phenomenon that happens every two, three, four, five, six, seven years in the Pacific. And when it does, it has big implications elsewhere in the world, right? Oh, yes. Yes, it does. It looks as though El Nino has returned, um, which is the world's largest climate event. And when we talk about El Nino Actually, we should probably talk about El Nino Southern Oscillation, uh, which denotes the atmospheric and oceanic coupling that drives this phenomenon. Basically, what happens is that trade winds in the equatorial Pacific blow from east to west. They take water with them that warms as it moves in that direction. This piles up in the western equatorial Pacific, just north of Australia over a number of years. And then uh, because of changes in the temperature of the atmosphere, the trade winds uh, weaken. Sometimes they actually reverse altogether. And then the warm pool that's been building up spills over everything across the seaboard and that raises temperatures and also alters rainfall patterns. Okay, so this is all big scale climatology stuff. But I guess what a lot of people really want to know is, does this mean it's going to rain more? Are we going to have a rubbish winter? Are we going to have a brilliant summer? Will there be droughts? Will there be floods? I mean, is it possible to specify to that extent? Do we know what El Nino really does in terms of things that affect people day to day? Well, as with all things climate, very difficult to say what exactly will happen where. But there are patterns in weather events triggered by El Nino that we know about. Often you get more rain in eastern Africa. Often you get more rain in on the west coast of America, which might be very welcome. Um, well, I mean, California's got a huge yeah, drought at the moment. This absolutely. is exactly what they want, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is. What scientists are saying, though, is hold your horses. The biggest El Nino event on record was the 1997 to 1998 event. And that saw you know, mudslides and all sorts of flooding in California. Too much rain. Too much rain, exactly. Yeah. But smaller El Nino events since then have not really brought much precipitation to the west coast at all. There is the ridiculously resilient blocking ridge, an area of high atmospheric pressure off the coast of California that they say is diverting storms, which is helping to cause the drought in California at the moment. And they're not quite sure how El Nino is going to interact with that. We don't know if the storms are going to get through, essentially. So there may also be a case because of the drought in California. um, There have been a lot of wildfires which have destroyed a lot of ground vegetation, which means that actually if it does rain as well, we're more likely to see landslides and mudslides because it won't absorb in the same way and possibly flooding from surface runoff. So the drought may not get solved and there may be... You might might just have a drought with a whole bunch of flash floods, so the worst of both worlds. Exactly, and that's if it rains at all. And then other parts of the world get drier. Yes. So presumably that's bad in different ways. That affects crops, that means 
you get lower yields, food yep. prices rise. Yep. Um, so particularly for this, as those kind of clouds shift towards the east, it, it may exacerbate problems already existing. And again, those kind of issues of surface runoff and things we may see in Australia again. And is, is it possible to summarise all this? I mean, if you go back and look at other El Nino's, can you say the sort of net effect is that food prices go up or down? Yeah, or, so... You know, how does it all wash out in the end? It's it, interesting. So there have been a, f- a few economic uh, studies of the impact of El Nino, but perhaps not as many as you'd think. Uh, one of the major things seems to be that maize uh, and rice yields globally are negatively impacted overall. But it's tricky to work out economic benefits exactly because in America, for example, because of all the temperature changes, you actually see fewer hurricanes in the Atlantic. So that basically means that the US East Coast sees less less damage from those kinds of storms. So the West Coast suffers a bit. West the East Coast, Coast suffers, gets yeah. better and the net effect is it's probably, probably good it, for the US? Yeah, well, the 1997-1998 El Nino, the US actually, there was a, a net benefit of $15 billion because also there are fewer um, tornadoes in the Midwest, which helps farming. So it's interesting. El Nino might benefit the US, but it, it certainly does not necessarily benefit um, large parts of South America, which see flooding and or drought. So then one final question, then we've we, we've sketched out all these effects. When does this hit? When can we expect to start seeing these? So we're already seeing, according to the latest predictions, sea surface temperature anomalies of up to sort of two Celsius in parts of the Pacific. Um, this is a little earlier than usual. Normally, El Nino's, the kind of maximum warm water spill is in December. And then the knock-on effects of that, the strange weather events that result in sort of February, March, April, that may all happen a little bit earlier. But having said that, we thought a big El Nino was coming last year. The atmospheric connection between water and, and atmosphere didn't quite come together. The trade winds did not relax enough last year. So we didn't get a proper El Nino. We kind of got some pool spilling. So it may all disappear again, but a scientist is saying with almost certainty that it looks like we've got an event on the way. So like all forecasting, it's probabilities, but this one seems pretty high. Yeah, yeah, it certainly does. And um, they say with 90% certainty, it could last into 2016 as well. Okay, well, we should uh, we should keep our eyes peeled. Thanks, Miranda, and thanks, Natasha, both of you, for for taking the time to talk to us. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for this episode. You can read both Natasha and Miranda's articles and plenty of other science and technology news in the upcoming issue of The Economist, either in print or online at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. The Economist. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact... You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. 